0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon and today we are going to have a show on illegal arms trading and social media's involvement in it. So this is a very interesting topic and quite timely. We've had some discussions about this in the media and I'm very happy to have as our guest speaker Nick Jensen-Jones. He's a military arms and munitions specialist and an analyst focusing on current and recent conflicts. He is also the director of Armament Research Services, so thank you so much for coming on the show as our guest to speak on this topic, Nick. Thanks, Chelsea. And for our listeners, I will tell you about Armament Research Services. It is a specialist technical intelligence consultancy offering expertise and analysis to a range of government and non-government entities in the arms and munition field. So it's a very great research organization. I highly recommend going to their website. They have all kinds of reports on a lot of different topics, so we'll definitely post the links so you as our listeners can check out the rest of their work. But first of all, Nick, um, we recently, on April 6th, had a New York Times article that was published, which featured some of your research, and that was called Facebook Groups Act as Weapons Bazaars for Militia. And I read this, I know a lot of other people read it, and it really sparked my interest. Some of your work was quoted in this report, and you were quoted as well. So first of all, how did you get into such an interesting and specialized research field looking at munitions and illegal arms trading?
1: Well, I think you know to talk about this um, particular report. This started uh a way way back in two thousand thirteen. Two thousand thirteen. One of our confidential sources inside Libya uh, told us about people trading weapons online uh, via different social media and communications platforms. And since then, we've we've sort of been trying to gauge interest um, from different different potential clients and from people who who want to understand the mechanics of this trade. And so we reached out to a couple of different organisations. Uh, and decided to partner with the Small Arms Survey to produce, um, you know, two two different reports. So one that's been released already, and one that's still forthcoming, uh, which examine the illicit arms trade, you know, very particular in Libya, um, from November 2014 through November 2015. But it forms part of a larger and ongoing research project um, that we've been conducting in-house, wherein we're, we're examining the trade of arms and munitions across a range of different countries and um, different conflicts and understanding uh, how these these, uh, can affect conflict dynamics and and conversely how conflict dynamics can affect the arms trade both uh, in the physical space and also online.
0: And as you mentioned, the New York Times article really focused on Libya and a little bit on Syria, but this is spread out between so many different countries. But before we get to that topic, I was wondering what kind of weapons and equipment are we seeing being offered um, in the social media sphere?
1: Well, I mean, it's pretty diverse, as you might expect. It ranges from the the small arms, uh, which include such weapons as as handguns, self-loading rifles, uh, light machine guns, and so on, um, through to what we call light weapons, uh, which are, just by the name, sort of the heavier systems in in that um, man-portable or team-portable realm. They can include grenade launchers, heavy machine guns, anti-tank-guided weapons, surface-train missile launchers, man-pads or man-portable air-defence systems, and so on. And then there's, there's sort of other items as well that fall outside the scope of the studies that we're producing for the Small Arms Survey, and, and those include uh, ammunition from small-caliber ammunition right through to, say, artillery or, or tank ammunition, uh, and also other, other ordnance items. So we've seen uh, demolition items, you know, blocks of uh, explosive compound um, intended for demolition purposes, through to uh, remnants from air-delivered munitions, uh, items such as, you know, like I say, um, artillery or... Um, or tank uh, projectiles, so quite quite a broad range of items there. Even some non um, some non uh, munitions items that we've we sort of kept loose tabs on, including communications equipment, body armour, uh, counterfeit documents, counterfeit and foreign currencies, and so on. And
0: can you, in your research, track where some of these items are coming from? I mean, these some of these items are hard to get your hands on. So where are they coming from?
1: Yeah, look, it's a good question. Of course, these sorts of items have have very diverse sources. Um, Speaking about Libya specifically, uh, we noticed that the majority of the light weapons, and and those are the systems we examined in in depth, the majority of those originate from Gaddafi-era stockpiles. However, there are um, some examples, many examples in the data set that have originated uh, following the 2011 revolution, and, and some that you know, come from the older stockpiles and some that come from the the sort of inter-sanction period, if you like, when Gaddafi was in power but sanctions had been um, lifted for a brief window there. So there's, there's a range of different sources.
0: And I was looking over some of the research reports on Armament Research Services' website. Report number five, which was titled A Tale of Two Rifles, was quite interesting because you discussed the presence of two weapons that you observed in the Libyan Civil War, which had previously been unseen. And these were the AK 103 and the FN Herstal F2000 rifles. I was wondering if you could discuss these two items and what their significance are?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, we treated research report number no. five really as a, a case study, a sort of a window into some of the issues um, surrounding the proliferation of small arms and light weapons from Libya. So I think it's fairly well understood probably by your listeners and, and, uh, and by sort of the, the wider um, media audience, if be like, that Libya has posed a problem uh, in terms of the, the proliferation of small arms and light weapons uh, from, from Libya and within the region and further abroad. So there's an understanding now that weapons uh, have proliferated from Libya and, and have ended up in countries including Niger, Mali, uh, Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt, uh, Syria, Gaza, as we say. So there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of sort of attention being focused on on those types of weapons. What we wanted to show was as complete as possible, uh, as complete as possible, rather, uh, a chain of custody. So we looked at um, two fairly visually distinctive rifles: the F2000 and the AK-103. Particularly the F2000, perhaps for the layperson, but the AK-103 too. Um, both of those are visually distinctive. They have a number of features that allow them to be readily identified from other weapons in say, video or, um, or images coming out of kind of comfort zones, without having to see those specific markings on the weapon. And we we decided to sort of look at how they arrived in Libya, and then sort of where they uh, where they ended uh, where they ended up, and what we wanted to understand were the mechanics involved and the steps involved, and, and really how this weapon goes from the factory to its ultimate endpoint. And in this case what put us on that path was the uh, the ultimate end point being um, the hands of Palestinian Islamic Jihad and some other um, designated terrorist groups and other military organizations within Gaza. And so it was a, a question um, of how did they how did they get there, but also a question of how did they uh, get there and in which numbers and in, into the hands of which organizations. So we started looking at the, the basic uh, process that we would undertake to identify the path uh, of diversion for any any arms and munitions item. That's to look at identify, track and trace, and they're the they're really the three key steps. So first of all, we have to work out what the weapon is. That is, we have to positively identify it. In this case, readily um, readily accessible material allowed us to, to do that quite quickly. We then to track it, and that's a step that a lot of organisations tend to miss out. They they tend to look at what is the weapon, and then they go to a tracing request where they approach a a government or manufacturer and try and determine when the weapon was diverted from the illicit to the illicit trade. That is, when it left government control or state control um, to a party that wasn't authorised. What we try and do is that that piece in between where we track the weapon between that point, uh, the point of diversion into the illicit sphere, and the point at which it ends up in the the hands of this group of concern or or ends up um, being documented by our staff, sources, or otherwise. And in this case, we were able to look at both the, the AK-103 and F-2000 and find information about when they were produced, uh, about when they were shipped to Libya, under which contracts they were shipped, to whom they were shipped, uh, when they were delivered. And then uh, we were able to interview sources in Libya to understand how they left uh, Libyan state control and ended up in the hands of uh, rebel forces. So in 2011, during the Libyan revolution, we uh, spoke with some... Sorry, I should be phased. We spoke with some uh, former rebel fighters who, during 2011 and during the revolution, had seized these weapons. uh, In one case, both the same weapons from the same individual, um, from a a former Gaddafi officer or a then-Gaddafi officer. And they'd taken these guns and they'd used them during the fighting of their own uh, own weapons. And eventually, they'd they'd been passed on to an arms dealer in Misrata. And this arms dealer had then, uh, through a confidential source of of areas that we um, we used in Libya, had admitted freely to sending these weapons to Gaza um, for the express purpose of assisting um, some of the Gaza militant organizations in in what he called the fight against Israel. And he was quite adamant that this was sort of his duty, and so he provided the weapons free of charge. So we know that there was a long process that took place wherein we got to find uh, the original producers, the original recipients, um, the unit these weapons were issued to, the rebel unit who captured these weapons from their gaddafi era uh, military unit, then the arms dealer who these weapons were were sold or given to, and from there the uh, militant uh, organisation in Gaza that receives these weapons as sort of aid um, from, from this Libyan arms deal. So it's a, a fairly unique picture into how a single rifle or a few rifles can... Uh, transit quite some distance, but also go through multiple multiple uh, owners and, and can end up quite um, quite apart from where the original uh, exporters intended these rifles to be. So clearly when the Belgian government um, or the Walloon regional government approves the export of these F2000 rifles, they uh, they did not intend for them to be in the hands of Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And so it's, it's an interesting case study in how these weapons can pass beyond their intended final recipient um, due to the various circumstances that have taken place.
0: The example you just mentioned, you really do see a long succession of these, these weapons being sent through different avenues and, and traded and going through different ownership and different people. Do you ever come across a case where the weapons have a very quick turnover in the sense of Leaving the manufacturer, maybe going through a middleman and going directly to a militia or a criminal organization.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that happens as well. I think the the Libyan example, though, it, it probably sounded long-winded in my description. is It's still a reasonably short chain of custody, and we do see examples where weapons make their way up through the African continent, for example, via multiple militias uh, over a period of. 20 30 40 years so there are very long chains of custody and there are as you say very short chains of custody where weapons are uh, exported and immediately handed on uh, to an unauthorized end user one sort of more pertinent recent example uh, we're aware that bulgaria for example um, exported some arm 9 and arm 9f rifles to the uae uh, who then re-exported them or rather transferred them without um the exportation authorization um, to non-state actors in in both Yemen and in Libya uh, during 2011, uh, Libyan revolution, and also more recently in Yemen with the um, the training of Yemeni the forces there. Now, we're not trying to make any moral or legal judgment. That's not the position of, of the company or, or my personal uh, sort of outlook. But purely from understanding the mechanics, I think it's very interesting to see that relatively short turnaround.
0: On social media platforms, how are these sales conducted? Is it on a first-come, first-served basis? Is it in an auction, similar setting to an auction? Are they sold to the highest bidder? Like, how does it work?
1: Okay, Uh, well, look, there are a couple of different ways in which which these platforms function. It depends, obviously, on the the platform itself, but also on um, the particular group or page that's involved, and in, in some cases, just on the wings of the seller uh, or the buyer. But generally speaking, an item will be posted, uh, advertised as, as being for sale or for trade, and sometimes a price will be uh, set, as sort of an asking price, but these tend to be um, fairly, fairly fluid and tend to be negotiated. Uh, so sometimes we see a public, uh, almost like a public bidding war, where people will post uh, you know, different prices and, and, and try and... Uh, try and sort of jockey for the right to purchase the item. But more commonly we'll see um just notes to say that a, a private message or a, a phone number to say that they should contact contact the uh, the seller via phone and we'll see people to say you posting up the, the statement saying that they've contacted the seller. And so when we when we looked into this a bit further and we interviewed um, nearly a dozen uh, confidential sources in Libya who were involved in the, the online illicit arms trade, as well as a few who had some sort of background knowledge. Uh, the more we, we dug into this, the more found that, as we'd initially suspected, the posts were mostly advertising to show that the weapon was available and to provide the contact details or the preferred method of contact. And then the real negotiations tend to take place via secure messaging apps or uh, via text message.
0: And once a buyer is achieved for a certain weapon, how are the transitions of monies done? Is it also through a social media platform, or is it hand delivery? How does that work?
1: In Libya, And again, this is sort of the, the last comment on this. I'll, I'll keep restricted to Libya because they're the reports that will be publicly available shortly. Um, in Libya, it's almost entirely done in cash. There was some discussion about different online forms or electronic forms of payment, but the uh, overwhelming majority of sales were conducted uh, were finalized in person in cash, cash for goods. Um, what's an interesting observation, for example, is that we noticed the trend towards exchanging the goods for cash uh, in some ways was perhaps bringing um, uh, almost a measure of safety to the arms trade. Some of the, some of the confidential sources we spoke to expressed a concern that when they went to purchase from a conventional black market location, they'd have to go to somebody's house or a warehouse or somewhere uh, where they're not necessarily safe or known to be and someone's sort of out of the way. With, with the majority of these sales being conducted um via social media and, and communications platforms. The exchanges are usually taking place in a semi a semi public or a semi private location, so, you know, an alleyway or a parking lot or something that sort of people are within earshot or, or within sight, but not necessarily immediately uh next to the buyer and so on. So one of the sources we spoke to a kind of, you know, rather wryly commented that there was some added measure of safety um, to conducting that, that, that business online, even though you might not know the sale or vice versa.
0: And then, reading over the article and reading over some of your research, this question came up into my mind, and that was, have you seen cases where sales have been made, and maybe the buyer has produced money and, and paid for this item, but they haven't received the goods? So. I guess you could call it a fraudulent sale. I mean, you've mentioned now that a lot of the transactions are done in person, but in a public place as well. But realistically, you're not going to go and hand someone a rocket launcher in the middle of the public. So so how does that work?
1: <laughs> well, no, I mean, even in those cases, you know, even with the larger rifles, I mean, we had a confidential source we spoke to who bought several rifles at once. And they just pulled their cars up alongside each other and, and transferred them in bags, you know, from the trunk of one car to the other. So... There wasn't a you know too much fanfare about it in another case, you know a seller said sorry, a buyer had said that he had to go to the seller's uh a warehouse that the seller owned um for for an entirely different business, but they can go through the business there so it's not you know universal rule, but in terms of fraudulent sales no um, not that we saw explicitly in the, the monitoring that we did. We did see one example in a group where um someone posting a weapon for sale had basically been called out by other other members of this uh, this online group say that what he sells is rubbish and junk and he did a very bad job of you know, putting it together or whatever it was. I think this was a, a particular um, Turkish hunting shotgun. And so there was, there was some concern over the quality of what he was selling. Uh, so there's, there's been that sort of consumer feedback, if you like, but there hasn't been in the, the period of monitoring that we conducted anyhow any express open uh, accusations of fraud
0: at sales in general of illegal arms is there a way of coming up with an estimate of how many illegal arms sales you think take place per year uh, and i guess you could use the libya example as well
1: yeah look i mean we do have some figures on it it's all fairly commercially sensitive so we we're holding that close to our chest um our hope is that we we find some, some further interest from different clients to examine the problem more broadly. The Small Arms Survey has been very interested under their security assessment in North Africa program in looking at Libya, which of course is an excellent first step. But we're hoping to expand that to examine Iraq, Yemen, uh, Syria, and also other pages in Thailand, the Philippines, Mexico, etc. So I, I won't give you a sort of a, a broad global perspective, but like you say, looking at Libya... We saw in some cases more recently the the trend had been towards 250, 300 posts a month. Um, and that's been sort of an increase over the period of monitoring that we've conducted up to present day and we continue to monitor on a daily basis. But there's also a, um, I think a a broader statistic which is, I can, I can share, which is to say we have an estimated 6,000 posts from the Middle East and North Africa region. Um, and that, to sort of put that in context, that's, from a focused monitoring period on Libya plus additional monitoring after that period, and then sort of an ad hoc monitoring of uh, Yemeni and Iraqi groups uh, and Syrian groups. So you know, the, the, the figure, the true figure, if you like, I would I would say is likely to be much higher.
0: And then looking at the New York Times article, there's a quote that I'd like to, or there's a piece in it that I would like to quote, which is interesting, especially here in the States. I'm sure a lot of people would like to know more about that And the article said that the weapons include many distributed by the United States to security forces and their proxies in the Middle East. So what's going on there?
1: So these are weapons, particularly uh, in Iraq, but also in Syria, um, and potentially elsewhere as well. We're still investing in a few cases, but particularly in Iraq, these are weapons that were either given or sold to the Iraqi government um, or that were... Yeah, sort of supplied to to various uh, security forces, um, which have which have been lost at some point, which have fallen outside of state control. So clearly, we saw when uh, the Iraqi army made a, a, a sort of a, a retreat against the Islamic State forces is that that some of these arms and munitions were lost, uh, and also there's some leakage you know, through corruption, crime, and other factors as well. So we see American-made weapons, for example, M4 and M16 type self-loading rifles, um, M249 like machine guns, and so on, sometimes come up for sale within these uh, within these Facebook groups, uh, within these various social media groups, particularly within Iraq.
0: Also, the New York Times article, as I said before, really focused mainly on trafficking in Libya and somewhat Syria. But you've done a lot of work in this field, so I was wondering, what other countries are we seeing using social media platforms for arms trafficking?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I should I should start by giving you some broader context and saying that the social media platforms are being used for arms trading, not necessarily illicit arms trading, just general arms trading by uh, you know a great many countries, including a very large majority of of Western uh, you know, developed nations. So it's not necessarily all illicit now. Facebook, for example, as one of these platforms, uh, has issued some uh, sort of community guidelines, community standards, which have, uh, since since January sought to prohibit the, the private trading in firearms and various other items. So there there are um, pushbacks from some of the companies, but the actual use of any communication or social media platform um, to trade in in really in any goods is not is not surprising. We, we sort of found that to be fairly normal and fairly. Um, Fairly well anticipated. We expect that people will use any communications or, or social media platform to exchange um, some sort of items and, and so on. With regards specifically to the illicit trade, the the big countries that we're following at the moment, um, Yemen, Iraq, Syria, uh, and, and Libya, these are areas which we have other research interests where we understand the mechanics of the black market apart from the online component. So it's very complementary research interests for us. But there are other countries, of course, as I touched on just briefly before, Thailand, the Philippines, and Mexico are three others that we're examining. And there are a number of other countries as well that we are keeping sort of a you know, close eye on. So it's a fairly well-distributed phenomenon. It's of particular interest to us in conflict and post-conflict zones where we can see the, uh, like I said, the, the complementary interest between the conventional black market analysis that we're conducting, the assessment of the proliferation and diversion of arms and munitions in the region, and this online illicit trade.
0: And then what other social media platforms besides Facebook, because, of course, the, the New York Times article really focused on Facebook mainly, what other platforms
1: are, I guess you could say, used for these deals? Look, I don't really want to go through and, and name all the platforms, um, but I will say that it's it's not just Facebook. It's not restricted to Facebook. Certainly, Facebook is a, um, you know, a dominant a dominant social media provider, so they, they're represented in that sort of way and um, quite highly amongst, amongst the trades. But there are other platforms that are involved. There are some regional specific platforms, for example. Uh, and then there are also other uh, social media platforms, but also, like I say, the secure messaging apps, the secure messaging communications platforms that play a pretty integral role in the, the final phases of the negotiation and trade.
0: And compared to the Libyan example, how similar or dissimilar are other country cases I know you mentioned Syria and um, other countries in the Middle East. I mean, are they very similar in the way that the ads are posted, the deals are made, or does it change for
1: each region slightly? Yeah, there are some differences. Um, generally speaking, they're quite similar. Again, as most of this is still uh, commercial proprietary data, we want to we hold on to some of the facts and figures, but I think you know, broadly speaking, the process is the same
0: what other methods besides the social media sphere are we seeing used for let's say
1: illegal arms trafficking at this point well you mean broadly in sort of a global sense or within the region
0: yeah exactly a broad global sense just so our listeners have an idea if they might not know a lot about the topic
1: sure yeah look i mean i'm trying to place this in some context i think it's important to say that in say libya for example and we'll run with the libyan example again that this sort of online sales, the online uh, trade, and the munitions is not the most significant component of the arm trade. So there's, uh, you know, obviously, there, like I said, there's some concern about uh, weapons proliferating out of Libya, uh, and the majority are doing so without any connection to, to the different online uh, trading platforms. So we see uh, weapons acquired in different ways, but during the 2011 Civil War, for example, um, great, great numbers of weapons were were sort of seized or looted from Gaddafi-era uh, military stockpiles or law enforcement stockpiles through the mechanism sort of what's known as battlefield capture. So we're looking at, at rebel units that have captured arms and munitions from uh, fleeing enemy soldiers, from army bases and, and depots that they've overrun, uh, from defectors who've come and, and joined the rebel forces and brought weapons with them, and also, in, in earlier in the conflict in particular, through corruption, uh, through leakage, uh, people selling their own personal arms, for example, uh, through the so-called ant trade of, of small uh, illicit smugglers bringing uh, very limited numbers of weapons across borders. And then later in the conflict, we saw some supply from, from, foreign, uh, from foreign countries as well, delivering weapons specifically for, for the use of the rebel forces. In modern-day Libya, we still see uh, leakage from from state security services. So we have one example where a uh, a shop <clears throat> owner, a jewelry store owner was able to purchase a, a self-loaning handgun from a member of the security services. And that was how he acquired his his weapon for self-defense and for the defense of store. So there's still leakage from the security forces. There's an influx of weapons um, from from certain countries and there'll be more information in the forthcoming report. But there's an influx of weapons Some of which are uh, exempt from the sanctions regime at present and others which have been illicitly imported into the country. And looking at your current research and
0: the current stats and everything, proportionately who are these weapons going to? Is it mainly militia groups, terror groups, potentially organized crime, or do we have more on an individual basis? people needing some sort of weapon to protect themselves. What are the proportions here of buyers?
1: Well, the overwhelming majority of uh, private individuals seeking arms and missions for different, different reasons, but, but usually for self-defense mm-hmm. or for defense of a business. And in Libya, in particular, there's a, um, an acknowledged threat of carjacking, something that people are very, very eager to defend against, so concealable, portable, uh, particularly handguns, but other weapons... Me, some machine guns or other weapons like that, but they're, they're quite small and portable and handy, have been preferred by a lot of these individual uh, buyers. I guess there are probably three other main groups. There are the small-time commercial traders. These are guys that are usually uh, trading in arms and munitions as a secondary income or um, you know, as a primary income in, in some cases. For example, one of the confidential sources we interviewed was trading in primarily mm-hmm. European self loading handguns. As a means of paying for his higher education, the the third group would be sort of the larger merchants. These are often tied to a, either a legal uh, store, like a hunting store, hunting goods store, or sometimes to a, a physical presence within the illicit arms market, uh, conventional black market, if you like. And they are often trading in larger volumes of weapons. Um, the hunting the hunting stores and so on often in in shotguns and handguns, many of which are from Turkey. Um, particularly blank firing handguns, so not lethal, but, but emitting a loud, probably a loud noise and a bright flash. Uh, and some of the illicit sales, and you know, sort of branching out to the uh, the online arena. And then I guess the final group is probably the smallest group as well: those with direct militia affiliations. It's difficult to disaggregate the individuals from from militia organisations in some cases. For example, an individual might be purchasing a rifle uh, himself, using his own profile and, and buy it on a one-to-one basis with the seller, but he might be purchasing that rifle to use in support of uh, militia or, or non-state armed group activities. So it's not always easy to, to distinctly tie individual purchases to these non-state actors. There are some examples, however, where particular individuals have stated, uh, either publicly or in private conversation, their affiliations with different leadership groups or different, different non-state groups, or where, in, in even more limited cases, um, these non-state actors have actually appointed someone, usually a, sort of a junior apprentice or uh, an assistant to their, their quartermaster, um, to sort of help out with acquisitions by delving into this online marketplace. That seems to be relatively new, happening on a very limited basis. Um, but it is happening. It shows that uh, some of these non-state actors, at least, are aware of this new marketplace and are looking to tap into that.
0: As we're talking about weapons and the illegal versus legal weapons, looking at the Libyan case, this is something that just popped into my head that makes me curious. What are the laws in Libya for purchasing weapons? Of course, here in the states to purchase a legal weapon, there's paperwork you go through, hopefully, and um, documentation. Does Libya have a similar system, or is that not the case in that
1: country? Well, look, I'm not a lawyer. I won't, I won't give you a legal position, but I can say that what we're interested in is rather than understanding what the sales are legal per se, we're very interested in understanding um, mm-hmm. the mechanics of the arms trade that takes place outside of state control. That's the language we're we're looking at using. We're looking for an arms trade uh, that's unregulated um, and and outside of oversight from from state state security forces or state uh, state organizations. So really what we're we're tracking here is otherwise unknown arms and munitions transactions within the country.
0: I like to always give our guests, if we have the time, uh, the moment to touch on what I call a final thought or potentially something that we might have not discussed in the talk, which maybe you'd like to address. So I'd like to hand the floor over to you for that.
1: Okay, look, I'm not sure that I, I want to boil this with too much detail, but I will sort of try and frame this report uh, in the context of the broader research so it's understood. There's a small arms survey dispatch released under the Security Assessment in North Africa program that was released um, a few days ago now. That's about a dozen pages, and that covers those light weapons that we talked about, particularly heavy machine guns, anti-tank weapons of different types, and man portable air defense systems. In about two months' time, perhaps three, we've got a longer-form report coming out. It's about 100 pages in length, and that examines small arms and light weapons more broadly. In fact, that examines 1,346 individual trades uh, or attempted trades over the one-year monitoring period. And that really is the tip of the iceberg. And I guess as a part of the thought, I'd like to highlight that The 1,346 trades that we captured over November 2014 to November 2015 is supplemented by the 97 trades we we captured over an 18-month period, particularly in light weapons. It's just a drop in the ocean. Uh, There are thousands and thousands more of these online trades that need to be studied so we can better understand it. But there are also, of course, an even even broader underlying pool of of illicit arms trades that take place in the conventional black market. The great advantage of the research into on Trade via social media platforms offers us is a unique window into the mechanics of how these these trades take place. So we get information on pricing data, we get information on the demographics, we get information on the, you know, the age, the location of the sellers involved. We get to look at trends over time and see which weapons become more or less popular and where the pricing takes us. We look at ammunition, for example, and how it relates or, or doesn't relate to the price of the different arms themselves. So I think, if anything, uh, as a parting thought, I'd like to leave really you listening to it. This sort of pressing need for further study, and we really need to understand not just the Libyan context but the broader Middle East and North Africa context, and quite probably the global context of how uh, these social media and communications platforms will affect the illicit arms trade.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show to discuss this very interesting topic. And as I mentioned, we'll definitely post a link to Armament Research Services, and our listeners can look at all the fantastic reports you have on your site and that you've done. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Nick.
1: It's my pleasure, Chelsea. Thank you.